Hello and welcome to our first ever NHS Comms podcast. And what better way to start than with a bit of dubstep? Because comms is cool. And one of my main aims with this podcast is to prove exactly that. My name is Joe Blunden and I've been working in NHS Comms for the past decade. Over the next few months, I'm going to be meeting with some of the loveliest and cleverest people from across our industry and talking about some of the key issues that we're all facing. Please don't worry if you're not one of the people I'm meeting with. I'm sure you are lovely and clever too. So for the first in the series, I decided to meet with the brilliant Anthony Tiernan and Sue Kong, and we chatted about all kinds of things, including the NHS long-term plan, social media, GDPR, and much more. Here's what we had to say. I'm joined today by NHS com celebrity, Anthony Tiernan. Do you like that term, Anthony? <laughs> Pick you up a little bit. As well as the lovely and incredibly experienced Sue Kong. Anthony, what are you up to these days? Celebrity. <laughs> yeah. I love that idea, but yeah. I don't think I can live up to that mansion, but uh, so who am I, what do I do? So currently I am the Director of Communications for Improvement and Development at NHS England and NHS Improvement. So those two organisations, hopefully people will now have integrated. I look after 10 of the sort of comms functions for NHS England and NHS Improvement. So they are, I'll quickly run through them. So events, publishing, digital, and the strategic communication. So how we prioritise our sort of, well, how we communicate our priority areas. So they range from learning disabilities through to cancer, through to mental health. So sort of our big work around those. I also look after the NHS communications development programmes. We run that with NHS Improvement, NHS England, and that's how we support communicators who work across the NHS. So we offer mentoring, we offer events every couple of months, we offer postgraduate qualification, and uh, NHS Comms Link, which is the sharing platform for NHS communicators. And last but not least, and it's a bit why I've got more grey hair than I had a year ago, <laughs> is I've also had the absolute pleasure of looking after EU exit, aka Brexit communications for the last six months or so. Yeah, and do you know what? We've deliberately avoided that in this <laughs> podcast to give you a break from it. Yeah, but we are going to cover cool. lots and lots of other stuff. You also did NHS 70 last year. What was your highlight? What was your favourite bit of all that? Other than standing on Abbey Road the night before yeah. uh, and singing uh, along with uh, Joe and colleagues and that song, and an embarrassing moment I'm singing because I definitely can't sing, uh, I would say would be actually the time I got to spend with about a dozen people who worked in the NHS at the start. So amazing people. There's a fabulous woman called Ethel Armstrong, um, who's 94, I think, 95 now. Um, and she worked in the NHS on the day it launched. Um, and just the stories and one, the passion that they have even you know now. Um, but the stories they would tell you about the NHS in its early days, how it worked, you know, and, and that change from when you know you you had to pay for it to you know july the 5th 1918 1948 um so yeah just those stories and the passion that those people had and they were absolute stars and when we had the daily mirror itv awards which was the pride of nhs which was just amazing and the choir sang there as well that moment of seeing ethel armstrong 
on the lap of Peter Andre uh, <laughs> with Paul O'Grady it was probably the moment of going, wow. Yeah, surreal <laughs> in the yeah, extreme. <laughs> so I love it. So you also started NHS Comms Org. Yeah. How long ago was that now? Quite a while. Oh, about seven years ago. So that's... Uh, yeah, just a way to support NHS communicators. I don't think we do enough to support people who work in comms across the NHS. And if you work in some of the sort of other professions, whether you're you know, a medical director or a nurse director or whatever, there's a lot of support out there for, for them, for their professions and so nurses or uh, medical directors and others. I don't think we have that for comms people. So uh, NHS comms was really just a way to connect people. Uh, we have events, there's a Facebook group. So if you're not on that, please join. Just go on to Facebook and search for NHS comms. You'll find it. There's Twitter and it just comes all and we're having a few more events coming up so yeah get involved it's just about sharing about connecting people there's about two and a half thousand comms people just an easy way for people to connect and actually share some of the great practice and ask amongst your friends some stupid questions that you might not want to ask people you work with you know outside yeah comms that's why i love it that facebook group in particular is yeah. so popular and people ask anything and everything on there but you're getting support from people that are your colleagues that, that are kind of in the same boat as you so it really does work and, and the twitter account is just full of really interesting yeah. signposting for people and we're living well where there's just so much data overload and information overload and just following your twitter account I, i've just learned a lot and also helped others who are not comms professionals to actually know what's out there and they can use as well so the way the podcast is going to work is that we've got a number of specific topics we'd like to cover, but we've also been sent some questions by you guys. Uh, we're also going to be sharing useful bits of content and links along the way, as well as our opinions and comments. Um, so there really should be something tangible for you to take away as we go through. So the first topic we wanted to talk about is the NHS long-term plan. Um, I'm going to be totally honest. I have only read the summary of this. I'm not entirely <laughs> sure about the impact that it really has. I remember the five-year forward view when I worked in an acute trust, and I wasn't too sure about the impact on my role as a comms professional. So it's great we've got Anthony here. Tell us about it. What do comms people really need to know about the NHS long-term plan? Yeah, so just the history of it. So back last summer, the government gave us an extra £20 billion for the NHS, and in return for that, in many ways, we needed to paint a picture for the future of the NHS. So that is the NHS long-term plan. So it's a vision, five to 10 years, where we're going and it covers all, you know, everything that you would expect. So from improvements in mental health, improvements in cancer, a lot of stuff around aging well, so supporting people as they get older, a lot of stuff around starting well, so looking after younger babies, younger people, mums and dads as well. So it covers all of the bits that you would imagine the NHS has um, and sort of those priority areas and how we're going to spend that, our investment generally, but that extra investment. What do you need to know as a commerce person? I'd say give it a read. It is 136 pages. And just double checking <laughs> there. But you can, in particular, if you like to maybe run or you like podcasts, there is a, an audio version, but it is eight hours and 56 minutes <laughs> and 52 seconds. You might want to split it up a little bit or go on a really long run. So you can do that. There is also the summary, so two pages and an easy read version as well. So they're all on there. And they're all on the website, longtermplan.nitches.uk. What do you need to know as a commerce person? So everything that's in it, is what you should or your organisation will be doing in many ways. So there's a story in there for you. I think you'll be able to tell the story better than it does because it's written for certain people in a certain way. But have a look. 
have a read, look at how it connects to your organization. In terms of change, there's a good bit in there for you in terms of if you are talking about future, potentially changing services, new approaches and stuff like that. I a lot of, I spend a lot of time people saying we need a case for change. That's the sort of language we use when we talk about changing services or developing services or improving services. The long-term plan is your case for change, and it's setting out where we're going in the longer term. And you should find everything to do with the services you provide in some way mentioned in there, and I'll be blooming surprised if you don't. Um, so the long-term plan is your case for change. Uh, look at it, think how you can link to it. What we need to do as NHS communicators is to help tell the story of the long-term plan and where we're going um, as an NHS overall. And it's an important story that whilst it's called the NHS long-term plan, it is more than the NHS and that bit about telling the story of, and this is where I'll throw in the acronyms and then never use them again, but STPs, the Sustainability and Transformation Plans, and ICSs, Integrated Care Systems. So how health and care are working together. And, th and that's why you don't need to talk about those acronyms. This is just how the NHS, um, you know, hospitals, ambulance services, mental health trusts, community trusts, GPs, pharmacists, all of the other people involved are working with local councils and others, whether that's, you know, uh, charities, local voluntary groups, whoever it is, housing associations and others in a local area to better improve the health um, and care of that population. That's the way I say to sum up what STBs and ICSs are. Um, and in doing that, I think you're sort of breaking away from that. Here's the building of a hospital. Here's the budget of a hospital and here's the board of a hospital or whatever other NHS body you might be talking about. And this is actually about how we focus on the people in that patch, in that area, rather than the buildings, the boards and the budgets. Um, so what, that's what's important. And we need to, as commons people, tell that story. So one is, you know, the, the themes of the long term plan, whether it's mental health or whatever, but also how we're doing it in a different way across, and I use the word patch, but across an area, across a patch, across a, you know, a local population. The way that the long-term plan will be delivered isn't by NHS England, by NHS improvement. And, you know, I'm sure I'm not being too rude about my colleagues. We don't deliver stuff in, you know, we're here in uh, NHS England's and NHS Improvement headquarters, uh, Skipton House. We don't deliver the long-term plan. The long-term plan will be delivered by the local NHS working with councils and working with voluntary sector partners and others. And the people that are going to be owning that delivery are the SDPs, so the Sustainability and Transformation Partnerships. There's 44 of those across the country. So they're the people that over the next few months are developing plans for the delivery of that big NHS long-term plan. And they'll be coming back in sort of the autumn time to say, this is how we're going to do it. So if you are a comms person, bang on the door, if you're not already involved, bang on the door of your local STP comms team and say, I want to be involved and how can I be involved? And part of that for me, if you're a comms person, is one, you want your staff to know that actually this local patch, you know, it has come together and is developing a plan because you want your staff to know there is a bigger plan than maybe your organisation's plan. There is a bigger NHS plan because people want to fulfil part of that, but there's a local plan being developed too. Um, and as part of that, I think as a comms person, is how you weave in your stories and you weave in those improvements and you weave in the great work you're doing. And we would say for the long-term plan, this isn't all brand new stuff. I mean, a lot of this is stuff that's going going on across the NHS already, and we're now trying to sort of spread it far and wide across the whole NHS. So you might be in your organisation doing absolutely amazing stuff that's, you know, top of the list of the stuff that the long-term plan is all about. So if you are, bang on the door of the STP and say, hey, how do we build this in there? What we've got for you is a summary of 
the long-term plan. If you don't want to spend nine hours <laughs> listening to a podcast or reading 186 pages, we have got this summary. It's courtesy of the Kenton Medway STP who kindly put this together for us and um, let us brand it and send it out to our members. This one is only 19 pages, so a little bit more accessible. But, um, you know, Expo's coming up in, when is it, September. And all, all obviously, Expo's themed around the NHS long-term plan. And Sue and I have, have put in some bids to speak at the event, and we had to match those up to the long-term plan, the different sections of it. And it was amazing how many elements of the job that we do as comms people and marketing people actually do align with it. You're talking about patient engagement, things like using technology and, and social media and, and other parts to, to deliver services, um, internal communications and actually supporting staff. I think there's, there is actually a lot of really great things we can do to contribute and not be too passive. Um, and a big part of the long-term plan is developing. So, you know, you launched this plan for the NHS and uh, that was obviously back in January. And the big sort of, you know, question we're asking is, but what about the workforce? So we will be launching uh, shortly a workforce plan. So this is the plan for the workforce uh, going forward. It's fundamental. We're out of the workforce, you know, and we're out recruiting to those areas where we've got gaps, but also without retaining the staff that we have and supporting them better, then, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm not saying we might as well pack up and go home, but you can't do it without those staff. Yeah. Um, so the workforce plan is fundamental to that too. Yeah, brilliant. So the next topic, and this was one of the ones that was um, sent in, a few of you sent in questions about this, about how are people working effectively? And kind of building on what we've already talked about, how are people working effectively? With local integrated care systems from a, from a comms perspective, I know you went to an event fairly recently, Sue, all around this this subject. So, what what kind of things are people doing well in this sphere? I, I think obviously we, we're hearing a lot from the kind of the early adopters, the beacon sites now, and one of the key messages from that workshop I was hearing was that if you had to redo this process again, especially with the beacon sites, what would you do differently? And it's amazing how many people say they wish they had comms and engagement at the very early stages of it. Because quite often when we look at these kind of topics, whether it's SDP or ICSs, we see them as projects. So it goes into the change management route and people think of it as changing a system. But as you said, Anthony, quite rightly, there's a narrative of change here. And who's better than com uh, communicators in there just to, to help you to, uh, talk about that? So instead of doing the classic NHS or making a massive change, uh, whether it's organisational system change, and then go out to consultation as a big exercise, you should be consulting all, on all the little decision-making has a local community, regardless of whether NHS, local authority, etc., and letting people have as they say. Because then you carry people with you. And one of the things I think people underestimate with com uh, communications in NHS is that they are great for building trust. Trust is, can only be built over time and consistently um, and with great clarity and constancy. And I think this is where our communication colleagues and our patient engagement colleagues sometimes wish they were brought in early enough by the project boards who lead these projects. And in fact, the project boards for some of these beacon sites, well, that was one of the key messages, and which was great to hear that, really. Because I think sometimes people think communications and engagement is soft and fluffy. It's a kind of luxury we'd like to do at the end, maybe, or, or will we just ask patients once we launch an app yeah. and they can test out, well, what's about all the kind of segmentation, the needs, finding yeah. out what they like, how they use our service, how they access the behaviours? Yeah. Because until you do all that at the beginning, then 
you can have a brand spanking new hospital or a new community service no one will use it yeah. because yeah. they don't even know what it is about yeah. and, um, yeah. and one of the messages that came out is that in the psyche of the general public they still understand GP practice and a &E departments yeah. and of course the hospital yeah. anything else they don't understand what it is. Yeah. I know we've got lots of communication about, you know, how when to use a pharmacy and all that side, but still so it's because we are still not building in and integrating comms and engagement in every step of the way, mm. as well as at the beginning of the project. So I think that is a big ch chance and, and, and actually um, opportunity, I think, for us. Yeah. As we part of our long-term plan. What do you think, Anthony? Definitely. One of the opportunities as well, and here's a bit of a plug, is tech. And we are launching this summer the NHS app. It's already out there in sort of testing mode and download it. If you go on to your supplier, I'm not allowed to plug into your suppliers, but if you go on to the supplier of wherever you get your apps from and type in NHS app, you'll get it. And it's there in some parts of the country. You can use it in all its full glory at the moment. In other parts, there's just limited service, but slowly but surely more will come on. And this will be the way that we get people to better understand the NHS. You can go on, you can use the 1-1 service online there, you know, and that way that you come from. And people are so used to doing it already you know, yeah. uh, with their banking or whatever. And this will be all of that in one place. Uh, get your patient record, get your, you know, uh, booking your appointments, you know, find out, uh, let's track what might be wrong with me and find out, you know, yeah. and point me in the direction of the right service. And once that's up and running, I think that'll work wonders in terms of actually people going, it is more than that because it's pointing me in the direction of the right place yeah. to download it if you haven't already. Yeah. Who's been responsible for that? Because I think it's a magnificent piece of work and it's obviously a huge piece of work to, to develop and deliver that. Who's actually been doing that? So it's the team here. So it's a part of the NHS England, the NHS Improvement team. So it's sort of the digital team here um, that have now become NHS X. Oh, um, so that is, so yeah, so that's how it works. NHS X. So that's bringing together all the sort of the digital side of uh, NHS England, NHS Improvement, and colleagues in the Department of Health and Social Care. So um, I keep thinking of X Factor every time. I know. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I told off that was cheesy. Uh, so I moved on from doing that. But yes, yeah, so that's NHSX and they're doing a lot of the other stuff that we're uh, launching we've launched the app library so the apps library so so many apps out there um, but actually are they any good yeah. so we do a vetting process for the NHS and you can go on so if you want an app for your mental health or whatever it might be these are good quality apps checked out by, you know, decent people and say, these are the apps you want. Go on the apps library, use those ones. Don't maybe use one that, hey, is that any good? Don't know. Go to the apps library and they'll... So yeah. where is the apps library? Where can you find that? Um, on the NHS.UK website, you'll find that. So that's the, in effect, the main NHS website, NHS.UK. Yeah. And if an NHS Trust wants to develop their own app, could they approach you they do, and, yeah. and you can help them with developing that? Yeah, and if they want to get into okay. the library, but a good thing, obviously, common sense is if you want it to be in the library in the in the end, you might want to have a chat with the guys at the start to work out how to get in the library and they'll be able to tell you how to do that um, and then get it in there. I have to say to people, I saw something the other day of people creating their own apps and libraries mm. and stuff. I think people just need to be really careful about yeah. some of this duplication. Okay. Mm. We all love apps. 
It's a bit like we all have, you know, I always remember working in hospital trust and everyone wanted their own leaflet with whatever it is. <laughs> we just need to be really careful how much money we're spending and how much time, you know, put into that because there are apps out there. And if you look at the library, NHS apps library, if something's already there, why would you want to click it's it? Like, yeah. Yeah. You know, I know it's lovely to have your own hospital logo or whatever it is, it is on it. And maybe you do localize it a bit, but just think how much money and time you're spending and whether in the long term you can sustain it. You know, and yeah. what you're going to end up doing if you in you know, five years' time say, oh, we can't sustain this anymore. Yeah. People that have logged on, all the information, all that, what happens? Whereas these ones that we're recommending yeah. are long term, you know, they're in it for the long term. I think there's always been a bit of a gap with that, though, in terms of that duplication across the whole of the NHS. And I'm not really sure who's kind of responsible for, for reducing that because, you know, every trust I've ever worked for does a flu campaign, <laughs> does a don't go to A&E campaign, staff survey campaign, flu, you know, all those types yeah. of stuff. We're doing them and we're all creating our own. And it would be great if there was a, I know that there's comms link and I know that yeah. NHS comms up, but somewhere that we can kind of... Comms link is one place I'd go. You've also got, if you go on to the PHE, I can't remember its official name, but like there's the, the campaign centre. Ah, oh, it's called the PHE campaign centre. There <laughs> yeah, we go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's where you'll find all of the campaign stuff. Yeah. And this year, here, another plug, NHS England, NHS Improvement, working with PHE, Public Health England, will be running the flu campaign. Um, so, you know, this is probably the time that comms people are off to start creating their lovely, yeah. amazing materials and stuff. The NHS is not one organisation, we know that, and people are independent and, you know, you have that level of autonomy to create stuff. But I do challenge to go, do you really want to go and spend that money yeah. on that when yeah. you've got a big national campaign coming to maybe spend that money on something different, something better? If the challenge is you think that the national campaigns aren't up, to scratch and aren't giving you what you want, then bang on the door of NHS England, NHS Improvement, and say, I want to be involved in this. We have a marketing reference group um, here at NHS England, NHS Improvement. So if you want to be part of that, drop us a line and, uh, you know, you can help shape the material. So I do. Yeah. I want to be part of it. There, there we are. go. There we are. So I'll connect you to there. Yeah. Tweet me or whatever it would be, contact me and I can connect people yeah. to the NHS marketing group. And you can help shape the flu campaign or whatever the next one is after that. Brilliant. So then you go, actually, why do I need to create my own one? Yeah. And maybe create your own campaigns on the ones that we wouldn't have a national one for. Yeah. Yeah, I just think, why do you want to spend a few thousand pounds on a flu campaign that you might want to spend on whatever it might be, yeah. better internal comms for your stuff? Yeah. Love that. Thank you very much. <laughs> so the next topic. And one that we get asked about quite a lot. And so I've just phrased it in this way. So is GDPR really that scary? I think this recording of our, of our webinar today is probably more scarier. You think about the world you know, with audio and, and voice recognition technology. You know, we talk about GDPR, just people's names and addresses, but it's going to move very quickly to fingerprints, voice recording. So, Joe, you can make a cut for my voice and in the future we'll be using that to approve all sorts of budgets. <laughs> um, but I, I think the key thing is, is obviously show respect with data, what you're collecting, why you're collecting it, what kinds of things you're going to do with people's data. I think that's the um, transparency bit of GDPR. And the... I think the key thing for communicators is sometimes just sit back and see the bigger picture because it's so easy, isn't it? I mean, I'm the IG lead for NHS Alert, so if there's anyone to be really into this, it will find tooth comb, it would probably be me. But sometimes you just have to sit back and say, what are we doing? Are we collecting this for the sake of collecting? Or actually, we're going to use this in a more productive way? Because we're living in a big data society now. There's always this trade-off between what my privacy is and what I give in return. 
that you get back. Now, you talk about apps, Anthony, mm -hmm. and you think about the next generation, they're all into these wearable uh, devices, such as your um, Apple phone. And people are sharing on Instagram their heart rate, their cholesterol levels. I mean, that is really personal, <laughs> you think about it. But people feel if you can give something back of value to them, they're worth giving up some of their privacy. And I think for us, uh, when we're dealing with patients and colleagues and staff and et cetera, is those are some of the kind of trade-off questions you have to say, what we, you know, what are people getting for it. And I think one of the key things about GDPR is, from a communicator's point of view, is consent. As long as you're asking people for their data, so you're not just bombarding with emails that they never gave you the permission to use in the first place, but more importantly, you give them the right to withdraw consent at any time. I think with the GDPR when it came in May of last year, that was like one of the biggest cultural changes. So you think about when someone do your media consent forms, we take it for granted. Once they sign that form, oh, it's like the whole life. Yeah. It's a lifetime of signature you've got there that you can use that photo of their little girl, their parents, whatever, forever. And what this means is not necessarily forever. People have a right to still contact you, even if their parents have passed away yeah. and they featured on your patient video to say, as a daughter or son, I still want my parents removed from them. Yeah. And yeah. you have to give them that right, especially in healthcare where we actually care. Funny so, enough, on that, on that note, we had a question in from somebody that says, what is the best practice for photo consent and I think for me most NHS trusts I've ever seen are, were already very very good when it came to consent for photos I think the only kind of differences that, that I think are, are important are a to be specific where you're actually going to use these images so before we like Sue said we would just have an image and say oh we'll use it basically wherever we feel like it whereas now is the best practice is to specify you're going to use it on the website social media in a leaflet and that will be it and the, the second thing which is to mention is to be clear how someone can withdraw their consent at any time which again i don't think we really we really had in the past and also to, to make sure you keep a record and keep keep a track of it and, and i've definitely been guilty of this i've got consent it's gone in a dusty drawer somewhere i couldn't <laughs> find it ever if, if you need if i needed to and i think that's really important too probably my last point actually is not to keep these images for too long to try and refresh your library i would recommend every two or three years i don't know what the actual mm, i don't think there is like a specified limit but you know especially in the, in the industry that we're working in people people can want their consent withdrawn and it's probably best not to keep our images for longer than three years anyway so i think that probably answers that question really but back to gdpr with you so obviously some people are, are fearful of it and, and i think we're probably pretty good in nhs anyway but you've been able to do some pretty great stuff in spite of GDPR. I was talking specifically of using WhatsApp to kind of engage with young people. Yeah, I think as NHS managers, whether you're working communications or not, I think you need to keep up to date with the latest digital news. Because whatever I say or Joe say or Anti say today, it may yeah. immediately be out of date by tomorrow. WhatsApp changed quite a lot when I was doing this with Engaging Friendly Parts Volunteers. And I've got a webinar, people are interested here, with the link here to hear that. That was last year. And what we now found, of course, is it's been bought by Facebook. That changes quite a lot of the, the encryption, the consent and all the kind of the small print that goes behind the scenes. So I can see what I was able to achieve last year with WhatsApp may not be able to achieve this year now with WhatsApp. But the thing what I learned last year was that working with Frimley Park Hospital, they wanted to, there's certain groups of demographics, you know, they you just need to work harder to get them 
sharing their ideas and their voice with you. I hate to use the word hard to reach because that means we're we're the one not doing enough kind of planning and thinking rather than they don't want to talk to us. So with that group, what we it was the 16 to 23-year-olds. How do we encourage the next generation of volunteers to carry on volunteering for their NHS? Where potentially for them, may not all be true for all of them, but they may see volunteering is very much for the 70 to 90 year olds who, uh, who are working in the hospital and it's actually something not for them. And what Friendly Park wants to do is very much engage with them and say, no, it is for you. You know, you're, you're studying maybe for medicine, you could be a future doctor, you're a future nurse, we can help you and get to understand this a bit more. So with this group, you can imagine they're all at school. So your traditional nine, Monday to Friday, nine to five, focus group trying to get them in is not going to work very well and what we did was a survey monkey first to ask all volunteers would you like to join a whatsapp group so that was the first consent so we don't even though the um the volunteers managers got their uh, email addresses you don't just immediately take that and then bombard them with email saying hey join the whatsapp group it's a, a clean phone it belongs to the hospital so it's not i'm not using my own personal phone or a nhs elect phone but it's a hospital phone which had nothing in there so it's, the contact book was completely clear and i think that's the kind of respect you have to give with gdpr if you're going to collect data especially with a younger group of audience like this but also being very clear with them making it out so we did a, a one week online focus group using whatsapp so they know it started at nine o'clock on monday it will end at five o'clock ish on a, on a friday we also make it made it clear to them that i will not be giving them their names to be allocated a letter so people can see their letter but of course people were saying you know we had staff who saying to me well it means that they can still view each other's profiles and that way. but that's up to their personal because each one of you when you sign up for these social media sites you can set your accounts private and they, they can't see or they yeah. can but i think with gdpr in this case is being completely honest with them yeah and and tell them they can just log off anytime they want and what we did at the end i actually showed them that i deleted all their um, mobile phone numbers from that work mobile phone and actually closed down the whole whatsapp group as well yeah. and that builds trust in yeah. the system which means in terms of communicating next time you want to go out and talk to them they could be a bigger group now wanting to engage. And I think that's another thing of looking at engagement tools is building trust yeah, along the way. Absolutely. So I guess the message really is that, yes, GDPR is a thing. We've all got to be mindful of it, but it shouldn't stop us doing really positive, really great engagement. And as long as consent is there, as long as opt-out is there, and a few other bits we talked about, you can, achieve, you can do some brilliant things with it. So let's get away from scary GDPR and onto equally scary social media. Although we're less scared of social media now than we used to be online, I think. We'll come to you, Anthony, for this one. Is social media much different this year? Is it much different? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things that I would flag. It's, has the social media itself changed? Not necessarily what we know of mergers and different things like that. I think the two things that would jump into my mind, one would be around we've got to rebuild trust. And I think yeah. there's a bit around, you know, Facebook and others having to rebuild trust yeah. um, following Cambridge Analytica and all of the other stuff that's gone on. So I think these organisations need to do it. But us, we've got a part to play in that. And I think as, you know, NHS organisations, we can help rebuild that trust because yeah. the last thing we want is actually people leaving in their droves from these platforms because actually we want to use them and we want to talk to people and I think that's part but it's part of what we would say anyway which is about authenticity it's about good stories it's about you know the power of the brand and all of that stuff so we can help by being good users of these platforms yeah. um, and telling good stories so I suppose that'd be one is how we 
rebuilt the trust in these things. I think the second one for me is around storytelling and the whole, you know, you've got to see it myself now. I go on Instagram and actually I've got friends who don't post any pictures anymore. I'm like, what? Well, they don't use it anymore. And actually it's the storytelling they're doing, you know, as you're landing. And they say not so much, well, not with my people I know, um, <laughs> but not so much with Facebook, yeah. um, but definitely with Instagram and other, you know, and Snapchat and others. So that storytelling piece is there and, and video photos and video coming into that more. So I think that's a big bit. And therefore, as organisations, we should be thinking how we can use that storytelling to our advantage. So I think that'd be the the big bits I've noticed, the biggest changes, you know, as we've moved into 2019. We've actually had a question on that exact thing, which is um, how can we tell stories through social media in creative ways? And I think Anthony's quite right. It's such a big trend and there are lots and lots of ways to do that. I think the most obvious one is, is Instagram stories, using that. Um, and using it effectively and spending a bit of time to actually figure out how do they work, what content yeah. actually works on that. And and what we found is it is the more kind of rough and ready, kind of authentic content that we're putting in stories that really does the trick. It's not necessarily the most polished and professional yeah. stuff that, yeah. that really works. Another great way of telling stories that I've, I definitely work is, is Twitter threads. Have you ever seen, you know, someone that writes like mm. 10, 20, 30 posts all in a row, but, they, but each tweet should be stand, stand alone and, and be sufficient in its own right. I think mm. Twitter threads are actually yeah. a growing way of telling decent stories. Videos, obviously, but these kind of authentic, real videos that are genuine and, and again, not too polished and professional. I, I think I'd add in as well as around, I think we're all being guilty of this, is quality over content yeah. you know and just how much you're pumping out actually yeah. a bit less time right a lot of tweets yeah and a bit more time thinking about you know whatever it might be i'm not just yeah. promoting twitter you know actually a bit more time and therefore a bit less yeah but they're better yeah you know and whether that's mm. you know you're putting great graphics with it or great films or whatever it might be and actually count up how many you've done it and go actually did i need to do that much yeah. or could i have invested some of that time in four great tweets over a day rather than 10. There's a few sites I want to share on this. The one at the top you might think is a weird shout, but Adobe Stock, and really I'm talking about any kind of higher quality stock photograph sites which you can use to tell your stories, because images tell such powerful stories, but yet we tend to use the same old kind of stock, old NHS photo library images and the stuff that we're putting out. And I think if you can find some real good graphics to illustrate your story, it brings it to life. So yeah, get some high quality stock photographs, not just your bog standard. Render Forest, I haven't mentioned motion graphics yet, but they're a great way to tell stories. And Render Forest, I love it because it can do all kinds of different types of graphics, but it's also, you can pay per video. A lot of these ones want to make you pay a monthly subscription of X amount, and you can pay $10 a video for this one. TikTok, really short, sharp videos, take a look at that. Then we've got InShot, which is a really neat app for your phone. If you're taking video content on your phone, you can edit it and, and add kind of all kinds of filters and all kinds of stuff to it and the last one unfold is to really help you tell your instagram stories sometimes it can be hard to think of how you're going to structure an instagram story or to lay it out or to make it look good and unfold has templates and you can just slot in your own content and make it look slick and great so there are loads of ways to be telling stories with social media and uh, there's a few sites there with social media in mind one other question i'd like to pose to you particularly anthony is Obviously, there's a lot of contention at the moment, politically, Brexit, all the rest of it. I don't want to bring up the B word after your traumatic role. It's not over yet. Yeah, well, quite. But one thing I definitely notice is there definitely seems to be a lot more 
almost aggressiveness from people on social media than there, than there was last year or the year before. We're very polarised, it seems, online, and we can't really seem to kind of manage other people's opinions. Have you noticed that? And what can we do as NHS people to kind of manage that and, and not get drawn into it? I've noticed it, and I think I avoid you know, and partly because of the job I have, you avoid some of this stuff anyway because you don't want to be called into it because yeah. that's the last thing you want. So I do avoid some of the stuff. I think there's a bit for us to call out some stuff. And actually only recently for the NHS England account, you know, there was some real, yeah, okay, the guys have done something. I'm not even going to talk about what it was, but something had been posted. It wasn't great. Yeah, it wasn't. No one had died. Was yeah, it awful, awful, awful? But it's a piling in bit, you know, where a lot of people yeah. are and people are constantly looking for something to find a fault in. Yeah. And yeah, whether it's NHS England or whether it's you know celebrity or whatever, that piling in bit. I think there's a bit for us to call that out a bit yeah, more. Yeah, I agree. Just before we go, I just want to share three brilliant things that I've seen recently. We're going to make this a bit of a feature of what we do because we need we don't celebrate what we do enough. Um, the first thing is I've seen some great people nailing mm. social media, some senior people nailing social yeah. media. So the first shout out is for Joe Harrison, Milton Keynes, the CEO at Milton Keynes, who's always yeah. posting great stuff, but he posted recently about their new three-year program for staff. Yeah, and it was just, it was brilliant. It was honest. It was clear. The staff loved it. Everyone else loved it as well. And the other one is Ruth May, who... Uh, kind of took on someone on social media without taking them on at all. She completely ignored it, but the message was really, really clear. Um, someone, again, was kind of criticising nursing, and she kind of didn't even get drawn into it, but made her point at the same time. And I just thought it was great to see these senior people making their mark on social media and doing it the right way, being honest and open and, and, and all the rest of it. So shout out to them and lots of others besides. Um, there's been a great campaign recently that I've seen through Medway. We, do, we work with Medway, they're one of our members. Not just the number, and it's a campaign they're doing to kind of humanise the people behind some of these stats and these targets that we're all doing and remind their own staff that there are people behind all these stats. And I thought it's a really neat, simple, nice clear yeah. campaign. And the last one, again, shows how often we get out and about. Again, it's Milton Keynes, actually, a bit of a big up Milton Keynes today, but they're, they're sepsis corridor. If anyone's been to Milton Keynes Hospital, they've got this massive corridor, which is just filled with brilliant artwork. And again, they just it's just a great way to use comms to put, put these messages out there. So that's the end of my conversation with Anthony and Sue. I don't know if you can hear it in my voice, but I actually felt really quite unwell throughout the whole thing. But they were so lovely and carried me through, and it's a pleasure to spend time with them. Apologies for the dubious sound quality. That's something we're going to sort out for the next edition. And with that next podcast in mind, please do send me any questions you'd like me to answer with my next guests. You can reach me at joe at nhselect.org.uk. But until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>